Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Birnbaum. Today, we talk to Dr. Marcello Giordano. Marcello is a researcher at Chatham Labs in Toronto. Chatham is an HCI consultancy dedicated to inventing the future of human computer interfaces and has worked with Disney Research, Autodesk, Google, and Microsoft. I've known Marcello many years, going back to my student days. So Marcello has a background in math, music, and haptics. He's worked at Ultra Haptics, which is now Ultra Leap, and Huawei Technologies. So he's really been exposed to a lot of different contexts of haptic design and product development from small startups to enormous technology companies. He's implemented haptic use cases ranging from mobile device UI to, to synchronizing the motions of groups of people with haptic signals. In the conversation, we talk about the problems that we still need to solve as a community around the design tools for haptics and gesture interaction, autonomous robots, and how accountability for their actions will work in the future, and human enhancement. So it was a really interesting set of topics, and I think Marcello lends a valuable perspective as a researcher who is active in the field and knowledgeable about what matters to a lot of the big tech companies that are investing in next-generation interfaces. So let's get started. I was just checking that we're recording, and we are, so everything's all good. Yeah. Nice. Where are you? Uh, I'm at work in a meeting room right now. So, um, yeah, I just, I just took a little bit of a break, uh, you know, so. How big is your office? Uh, so the office is uh, actually kind of funny. Like, we just moved into this building, and um, it used to be back in the day, I'm not sure when, probably like early 2000, I think, uh, used to be the home of um, either Blue Jays or like Maple Leafs, either like hockey or baseball player. Um, so it's kind of bizarre because like a bunch of companies that work have been here before, but then there are like features that are like clearly from when it was a residential place. So we have like a, a fireplace in the middle of our office space. We have a, a there is kind of like a, a big marble bathroom with a with a bathtub in the middle, which I don't know. It's uh, not the kind of the thing that you expect in an office. So um, but it's interesting. So we're kind of like in the middle of making plans to re renovate but it's fun we have we have a wine fridge which unfortunately we don't use but it's there uh, it's kind of neat to think that we are basically like working in what used to be the party space for a hockey player that is pretty funny wow so so um i would love for you to introduce yourself and tell everybody how we know each other and also how your background in haptics is playing into chatham and what you guys are up to just everything all the things go all the things okay uh so i'm marcello i'm uh, from italy originally but i moved away it's gonna be 11 years now so it's, it's been a while my background is like in math mainly i did a, an undergrad and a master's i was doing some abstract things like not theory, algebraic topology, these things that that at some point start getting and shaping your brain in a way that I, I don't think I was liking anymore. Uh, I felt like I was, you know, off a tangent and, and like too, too abstract. You know, I, I wanted to change a little bit what I was doing at some point and I got um, into this media technology program. And this was when I had already moved away. I was uh, in France at the time and I decided to apply to this program and my initial thought was that I was going to work mainly on things related to like DSP and like sound synthesis so trying to apply my, my math background to something that was a little bit more um, you know more grounded more more like kind of application oriented and one of the things that I've always been interested in was music so I thought yeah that's great like these guys are doing some pretty cool stuff. This was in Grenoble. The place was called the Acroe, uh, which was one of the oldest labs in France where they started to do this like computer music research. And then I arrived there thinking that I was going to work on all these things and um and then I entered into this room and they had this huge haptic device uh, which was actually just built and designed in-house. It was probably the founders there, Claude Cadoz and, and Jean-Luc Florent, they were all been working on this for decades. And it was this massive like device that was, uh, you know, the shape was like these slice motors and each one of them was like the same size of a piano key 
because I guess the idea would be that you could play and like a digital piano and then get the same effect that you would get on the keys of a real piano, right? And that's where I first heard of haptics. And I just started, uh, you know, being fascinated by this thing. It was such like a beautiful mechanical object. And then even the things that they could do were, were pretty great at the time. I'd never seen any, anything like that. They had different tools that you can mount on these slice motors. And uh, you could simulate like bowing a string or they had like a six degree of freedom or a three uh, degree of freedom joystick that you can mount on it and just experience all these artificial forces, control like a sphere attached to a spring and things like that. You know, the, the basic simple demos that you get. And then, yeah, and then instead of working on DSP, I, I actually started, you know, getting more and more interested into uh, into haptics and especially haptics applied to music and to the design of musical interfaces. And so by the end of that year, um, we were supposed to do an internship and I asked my supervisor there, you know, if they knew anybody were working on more kind of haptic related stuff. And I got sort of like shipped to uh, Montreal for a six month internship at the Eid Mill at McGill with uh, Marcelo uh, Vanderly, which was, uh, I think he knew Claude Cadeau's from his days back at IRCAM where he did his PhD and, and this is kind of where I got, I think you'd already left, probably was the year after you left the Eidmill. And, um, but still all your stuff was there, all the work you'd been doing, the brake flute, or I remember, what was it called? The FASA, you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like software tools to take sound and turn it into vibration and then play this through like a custom built controller that kind of resembled the flute. So yeah, I, I got into the lab and this was like the stuff that we're, um, you know, when Marcelo was showing me what his the students were working on and, uh, and, and it was great because like, I realized that that's what I wanted to be. And, and what then was supposed to be a six month internship turned out to be like a six year stay, uh, for, for like a five year PhD basically. So, um, wow. yeah, it's interesting. It's a really similar story to me in the sense that electronic music brought you to haptics and then you kind of graduated from music and now you're just applying haptics more broadly. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, then, then of course I come from more of a scientific background and then, and then yes, it is like part of the music program, but what we do at the admit, like is very technical, right? Like most of the guys there are either computer scientists or, or engineers after I started working, after I graduated and, you know, uh, people would ask also, what's your background? And then I have to say, yeah, I got a PhD in music. And people are like, what, <laughs> what are you even doing here? <laughs> so what was, what did you build as a part of your PhD? Was it a haptic device? So it was, it was several things. So, um, we kind of had, um, a broad spectrum of, of collaborations. Um, I was a couple of things that I worked on that I found really interesting are tactile metronomes. Uh, so I did a quite a bit of work on that, trying to figure out how does a musician perform when tempo cues are coming from a vibration on their arm, for instance. And then we kind of like pushed that forward and, and built together with another guy at the lab, a system that was like a distributed metronome kind of like we had a, we had this piece that was composed for like a quarter of saxophone players and they were all playing wearing one instance of this haptic metronome uh, that was pretty that was pretty cool you know it was funny because like the timing it's kind of like you know when when you realize that you're working on something but it's kind of like in the air because a lot of people are sort of working on something similar and it was a matter of months not even a year that then this german company soundbrenner they released their haptic metronome, like this kind of smartwatch looking thing. And um, uh, yeah, it was kind of so funny to see people in different contexts, different continents, even just, just coming out with sort of the same ideas, right? Have you used theirs? It's called the Pulse, I, right? Or the, what is it called? I'll figure it out later. Uh, I think so. Some, yeah, so I'm trying to Pulse. And, uh, and it's funny because I actually, one of the guys, one of the founders there, um, uh, Julian, uh, forget his last name, but he used to be at the Idmil too. So um, he had just graduated from his master's there, flew back to Germany, and then got involved into this uh, Soundbrenner company. It's kind of funny, like, so, you know, we kind of keep circling back mm. to Idmil in some way. Interesting. I didn't realize. But anyway, have you, have you tried it? Was it using the same principles as yours, the same design approaches, or was it using kind of a different approach? 
Uh, I tried, I remember trying one of the earlier versions. I know that they have a completely revamped product coming out now. But I mean, their, theirs was definitely stronger because they did a lot of work having this super beefy actuator in it that could really, you know, it, it was kind of like engineering wise, a pretty good one. I remember noticing that it was super powerful, but at the same time, pretty quick in the response. Uh, which is kind of like not not so much these days anymore, but back in the day, like when you know the most common actuators were these ERMs, those are these spinning masses. They they always have this trade-off between being fast but being powerful, right? So that one I remember it being kind of a good compromise between the two. For us, the thing that I worked on that was one of the issues because I was using one of these kind of off-the-shelf ERMs that were straight from a manufacturer that was selling it to phone companies and. Yeah, the thing was slow. Like it's, it was hard to get a pretty fast ramp up. We tried to do some tricks like working on the electronics, some kind of overdrive to make it go as fast as we could. But then a couple of times, I mean, we didn't make it explode, but <laughs> close. Things are much better now, though. So um, much, much better hardware out there. So uh, yeah, I'm curious to try their new one as soon yeah. as it comes. Yeah, but the design was, uh, I think the design choices were pretty similar, like, you know, wearable, can sort of place it wherever you want. Our controls were like on server side, so we were bound to kind of have it wired, but their stuff also works pretty well, like wirelessly with this app that you have on your phone. So much, much more finished and polished kind of thing. It's very nice. I mean, I, I always liked it. Yeah, and it just seems like that's a specific case of haptics synchronizing movements of multiple people and that it's kind of a good application for haptics. You know, certainly music is one of them, but there's probably a lot more we could do there with fitness and training and other fields like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. You know, because it's kind of like these silent cues that maybe at some point you even start, you don't kind of need to pay so much conscious attention to it. It just kind of like becomes this external cue, but lands in with what, what you're doing, which I think it was the case with, for instance, this metronome, because I remember the feedback we got from the musicians at the time was like, you know, it was the kind of piece that they had to play that if we didn't have brought these tactile metronomes to them, they would have used click tracks in their ear. And you talk to any musicians, I'm, I'm sure there's nobody that's going to say, oh, my God, click tracks, so good. Uh, you know, everyone hated it. Like, it, you, you get this beep in your ear all the time, right? Mm. But with that, it was much more subtle. It was there and they sort of switched their attention on and off in a way that, you know, yeah, it's here, but maybe this section is easy. So I don't really need to pay attention to the metronome so much. Oh, but now the hard part is coming and then I can sort of focus my physical attention to my left wrist because that's where the actuator is. Right. And that applies. I'm sure. Yeah. As you said, fitness could be one cleaning classes, things like that. That could be pretty good application, I think. This kind of like subtle cues that the user can decide to pay attention on depending on the context. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So next steps in your career, did they also have to do with music or just haptics? Yeah. After I graduated, I did a short postdoc also like related to music, but then I kind of felt I wanted to sort of broaden my horizons a bit and get to see what was there in terms of, in terms of haptics, but in a more general uh, field and um, to go a little bit out of this music, uh, of the music domain. It always remains something I was really interested in. I keep like, whenever there is a haptic and music conference, I always like download the proceedings and start start seeing what people are working on. But yeah, so I I sort of got out of the music domain and, um, and I got my first haptic job, if you want to call it, at uh, Ultra Haptics, which Actually, I should call Ultra Leap since a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the time this airs, that'll be old news, but we're still all coming to terms with the new name, which, by the way, beautiful new name, I have to say. Yeah. It's so yeah, rare it's that a merge like that winds up improving both names, but it really did. Yeah, no, Ultra Haptics, uh, I remember the first time I went to a conference and then people saw Ultra Haptics, they didn't understand that the ultra part was ultrasound yeah yeah they were just thought it was like ultra experience yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Like, oh so what's so special about your haptics there it's like no it's actually you know ultrasound and they were like oh okay i thought you guys were kind of trying to sell the next ultimate greatest haptic device ever made yeah it's kind of a cool it's a cool merger of the, of the two and 
yeah, so that's where I got a job there. I think it was, uh, when was this, 2016? So almost yeah, three three years ago now, almost four. And yeah, it was like the moment where Ultra Haptics were, was going from like small startup into like brand new office in the, you know, new cool area in Bristol by the canal and a massive expansion. Three weeks after I joined, we went from maybe 2015 to more than 50 people. So was that moment in the cycle of life of a startup. So it was pretty exciting to be there for that. Yeah. So interesting projects started coming in, a lot of clients from in different industries that heard about this technology and wanted to try it out. Does it work in our context? Can we make it work in the automotive domain? Can we make it work for this game that's going to go in like casinos all over the world? So yeah, there, there were a lot of things going on at the same time. It was kind of exciting. And yeah, and for me, it was like, yeah, so there is a big market out there for haptic devices and haptic interfaces and people want this to work. And it was great to see that, right? Because I think everybody understands that that's a huge part of any sort of interaction and, and be there at Ultra Haptics while, you know, people would come to us with the hope that this could be the thing that solved their problem it was great to see. Yeah. So yeah, spent there a good couple of years did some pretty interesting work, learned to work in a different way that is not just research, but like, you know, you have to take stakeholders and customers into account, deliver products, make actual haptic experiences that they're not just going to be on, you know, like a paper that you submit to a, to a journal, to a conference, but like potentially hundreds or thousands of people are going to try this thing that you made. So now it needs to work, it needs to be good. It's never going to be perfect, but, but you know, it's another level of like design and, and, you know, attention to detail that I wasn't really used to. And it was great. I mean, I don't regret my choice at all. I mean, academia is great, but I think for what I want as a person who works in haptics, as a designer, as a researcher in like tech, that's the kind of thing that you always have to remember that academia sort of, at least for me, failed a bit to show me the importance of users and not just research. And it was so, so important. And haptics is unique too, and I think it's more difficult to get past that last hurdle of making a product than other modalities. Maybe because it's less mature, so there are fewer tools and software stacks available and people have been doing it for less time, but getting from a cool demo in a lab to something that works consistently for different people, different sized people, different demographics, different contexts of use where there's fluctuating temperatures and distractions. It's just really hard. So oh, yeah. yeah, I applaud uh, all that work that Ultraleaf is doing on that because they've really invested in creating these types of developer kits that, that people can use to deploy real experiences. So after all that, you wound up back in Canada. I did, yeah. I ended up coming back to Toronto and yeah, and then after two, three years at Ultra Haptics, I just decided that I want to try something new. Go from that small startup where you're going to wear many hats at the same time. So I joined uh, Huawei, which has a kind of a big HCI group here in Toronto. And yeah, I started kind of exploring the market for haptics in the mobile space. And it was also super interesting because now you go from, you know, literally your hardware team is sitting two desks away from you so you can go ask them uh oh yeah so like this interface like it's not doing what i think it's doing can you come debug this together to having these products kind of land on your desk and then if you want to reach out and figure out why some things have been designed in a certain way there's an entire pipeline that goes back on several groups and, and you don't have physical, not, not even physical, but sometimes you don't even know, like if you want to email somebody about why some things work the way they work, it's very hard. Just such a gigantic organizations that it's impossible even to get answers sometimes. And, um, and it was just see that the difference between those two words was kind of striking for me. And, and it's a literally like such a different experience. My team, there was like a mainly like a research oriented team. So we had more space to explore. But then the question of like bringing something back into product that was definitely on another level as maybe was at Ultra, Ultra Leap before. A lot more questions, a lot more constraints to take into account. Cost versus power consumption versus uh, how many hours these developers uh, 
in the uh, product team are going to have to put into converting the research code that you're sending them into production code. For me, very formative to see a part like of this gigantic mechanism. Very, very, very fascinating. I mean, I, I really like my time there just to get the experience to see how such a big corporation sort of works and operates, especially in such a small domain as haptics can be. So like these kind of decisions are made for every component that goes into the phone. There is discussion going on and it's amazing to see the final product coming into life afterwards. It was, was pretty nice. So it was a haptics gig there too. I don't know if you can talk about it, but what were they doing with haptics? So not so much, unfortunately. So most of the stuff I worked on there was mainly kind of basic research. I had to figure out like new interactions or new things we could do with haptics on their platform. But yeah, m- most of the stuff I, I worked on is, uh, yeah, I, can't, I can't really talk. But yeah, definitely there is an interest, I guess, in any any company's work, phones or any sort of like handheld or like wearable device, they're, they're interested in haptics. And, and it's so great to see that there is that understanding that haptics is a fundamental component. So sitting in meetings where people are bringing like haptics as one of the points that they want to discuss for the development of the new product lines from here to 10 years, it was it was great, right? You, you just see that, okay, so this is happening. We're trying to plan what the haptics are going to be maybe 10 years down the line. And, and wow. so good to be part of that. Yeah. And now you're at Chatham Labs. Which is, I don't know what you guys do. Can you tell me what you do? Is that allowed? Are you allowed to say that? Uh, I'm allowed to say, I mean, what can I say? So Chatham Labs is um, so this organization where sort of went back to sort of the smaller group kind of feeling because uh, I don't know, it felt, it felt maybe more familiar for me to work in some, to something like that. And it was, I think, a very interesting project and a very interested business model that they have here. And and the idea is that we're a group of uh, researchers and uh, we provide to companies sort of services that if they wanted to work or maybe they have a piece of tech, let's say that they want to test and they're not really sure if this tech is going to be doing what they think it's doing, if it's valuable in the same way it looks on paper, and maybe to test this technology and they would need to sort of put together an entire research team within the company. But sometimes that takes a long time. It's a huge investment. And so what we try to do here is that by having this very diversified group of researchers, we can go to companies and say, hey, so we can provide this sort of service to you. You want us to try this tech and like do a maybe a research study where we're trying to see if the thing works the way you expect it to, we can do this for you. But very research oriented in terms that uh, if it's part of the scope of the project, we can publish papers, we can submit patents. You know, it's really going to depend on what, what the company and what the client wants to do. But it's basically like, like we provide sort of a consulting business model for bleeding edge research that is targeted to whoever needs it. So it's not just haptics. You're like the haptics guy and the HCI company, right? Exactly. Okay. HCI company. So we we have people with backgrounds going from data visualizations to uh, virtual and augmented reality. And I'm kind of the haptics person in the house. So if there is any any sort of project that involves haptics, that's sort of when my expertise comes into play. And it's sort of like what also I wanted going forward in my career, like seeing a little bit more in terms of like HCI in a kind of a broader spectrum, because I think it helps as haptics becomes more and more integrated into different experiences, different platforms, different technologies. You kind of have to have an understanding of how things work, you know, in different fields. Like I never really worked on AR, VR, for instance, but uh, at Ultra Haptics, we did some of that, but now I can see uh, or be more exposed to technology just because some of my colleagues are like experts in in that and I can sort of just talk to them and and that makes me think you know more in terms of like how can I integrate haptics in these new platforms and in these new experiences that are coming and yeah and so it's great I think it's like another step forward in terms of becoming a more I guess a more aware haptic researchers just because I can see the trends that industry is taking and try to figure out where haptics is going to be in a whole different set of contexts and, and platforms. So without divulging anything that you can't, you just talked about AR, VR, and you're talking about haptics as emerging technology. 
speaking as an expert and somebody who's plugged in, where do you think the most interesting applications are in the next few years? What makes you excited for haptics? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, it's going to depend a lot. As I think we we discussed this before, haptics is, is something that I think is so bound to like detecting context. So you want to have the right context and you want to know what the user is doing to provide haptics that are the best or like the most suited to the scenario that the user is in at the moment. So definitely anything that we can do to improve that context detection is going to improve haptics. I think is going to be bound to to make haptic much better in terms of like kind of more integrated with the environment, more subtle when they need to be subtle or prominent where they need to be prominent sort of thing, which is, I think, one of the things that haptics are lacking of now. Like we sort of get this standardized even on our phones or like notifications that don't really adapt to what we're doing. And I think that that's going to be I'm, I'm really excited, to be honest, to kind of like play with that and, and see where we can go. In terms of technology per se, uh, I mean, there is just so much work being done in terms of wearable haptic devices. Uh, people are trying all sort of things from like lateral stretching to vibration, to pressure, to temperature, to combining all of these things together and see if we you know, can achieve different type of effects that maybe a few years ago, we wouldn't even think that where we would be able to like synthesize with just one of these interfaces. So that that's extremely exciting to see. Like, I don't know, whenever year after year after year, you see like these word haptics conferences and you look at the papers and there is a new type of interface coming out, like a new type of way of stretching the skin in some way that, you know, capable of eliciting a different type of sensation which is great. And and I just, I don't know how far down the line that's going to be, maybe five, maybe 10 years in which we're going to have, I, I don't want to say like a universal, this is probably something that's never going to happen, I guess, a universal haptic interface, if you can think about it, like mm. that's sort of the dream, right? But I don't know what kind of tech we're going to need to get there. I think you're right. I mean, it doesn't have to be universal in the sense of being able to elicit any sensation, but in the same sense that a smartphone is like a universal communicator, Right. Like everyone has one. They're almost all the same size, basically, and they have the same sets of features and, you know, they're limited in what they can do, but they provide immense value. Um, it could be that there's like a universal, quote unquote, haptic display that's, I don't know, a smartwatch, let's say, with a certain amount of haptic fidelity in it that crosses the threshold for developers to really start to build apps with haptic feedback. Maybe there's something like that. Yeah, I could see that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the context awareness thing is is interesting just thinking back earlier in the conversation about how musicians using a haptic metronome can choose to attend or not based on whether they need that help and that guidance in that moment. Yeah. And yeah may- maybe there are some use cases where you don't need context awareness like that one, right? You just, this thing is the king of the whole interaction. Like it's the metronome, the beating heart of everybody doing everything. And you can either listen or not, but it's not going to change. It's just going to keep plugging on and you can dip in and out uh, of it with your attention. And then there's other types of haptics that really, really need to be contextually aware because maybe you can't even feel it in some situations. Like if you're in the car and the car needs to give you an urgent alert and it vibrates you, but the vibration it uses to signal you is not stronger than the ambient vibration of the car at that moment because you're driving on a rough road, it's useless. It's like worse than useless because actually the car thinks it alerted you and it hasn't. So. That's, yeah, exactly. It's interesting to think about the use cases as kind of bifurcating along the line of like ones that absolutely need context to work and ones that you could just implement without that. Because, of course, the ones that you could implement without context are going to be much easier to create. So maybe yeah. it's like they're kind of lower hanging fruit in that sense. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and, and I mean, the, the car example is, is that you just made is great because like that's exactly I think one of the things that we're all aware of, like that in the same uh, sort of vibration sometimes are you got your phone out, it's on the table, it starts vibrating and it makes more noise than the actual ringtone would make just because the thing is bouncing on and off the table. And then you got it in your pocket, but the vibration there is not strong enough because maybe you're running and then you just miss a very important call. And that that's exactly the same kind of situation, right? So sort of closing that feedback loop between like sensing and it can be sensing in any any possible source of information that you can think of from 
pulling events from your calendar and knowing what it is that you're doing and literally like reading your accelerometer and see that, okay, so the person's probably running. I think I need to turn these vibrations a little bit up. That feedback loop, there is so much work that we can do to make it more efficient, to get closer, to basically have a better understanding of what kind of haptics we want to deliver at what time. Yeah, and the total the car example just fits into that. So yeah, it's, that's going to be that's going to be very exciting, I think. So you're seeing, you said you're thinking a little bit about AR, VR. I'm noticing that there are a lot of people who treat the mixed reality use case for haptics as a marker for what haptics should be like. Like if if haptics succeeds, that means we should be able to make a haptic interface that works with VR and really transports you and to some extent implements the Ready Player One suit mm-hmm. idea. But then that could just be a distraction because there's so much going on in wearables and automotive and medical and mobile and 5G and everything else. And it just seems like there's kind of two different opinions emerging. Some people just think they want to focus totally on VR. Some people are saying that's not the future. Also, VR is obviously going through some difficulty right now. Although the Oculus Quest is really cool and everything, it didn't reach the scale that a lot of people thought it would as fast as they thought it would, right? Where do you sit on that continuum? That's, yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, everybody's been talking about it for, for years now. I don't know, in this moment where it's finally going to pick up steam and, and become mainstream, are we going to see it or not? It's, it's going to be, it's going to be very hard to see. You mentioned the, the quest is, uh, is great because like it's lowering the entry barriers pretty much as much as, as it possibly can. No cables, no in, like inside out tracking that works decently well. I think they just maybe announced, what was it yesterday, two days ago that now they have hand tracking too, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, if that doesn't work, I don't know what will. If we want to dream about these scenarios where people can put their headsets on and there is, and that's always the problem. There needs to be content that's going to drive them to do that, right? And this content needs to come from somewhere, and I'm sure that haptic can be a part of that. If you manage to find a way that there is a VR application with a hand tracking and even like embedded haptics. That works really well. And I think you mentioned 5G and there is a lot of talk about this tactile internet. So now this content that is also haptic, that is streamed towards uh, through this very high bandwidth and fast networks. If we can find a way to leverage all of this ecosystem that is coming together, I think there is hope for VR or mixed reality to really play a key role there and for haptics to, to be a part of it. But again, as with everything with haptics, since we don't have this science fiction is sort of a universal haptic interface, there needs to be a player out there that is capable of pushing their technology and maybe making it the de facto standard for like these experiences. Because then now I'm in in this VR environment and these textures of all the things around me have been encoded and are being transmitted through very fast 5G networks through this haptic encoding format that's somewhere it's being designed and and how do I render this to the user? And with the plethora of interfaces we have now, everybody's going to have a very different experience. I'm sitting at home with my Ultra Leap device in front of me and I'm touching textures or I'm doing it with my Tambas uh, iPad in front of me and I'm touching the same texture. Very different experience, very different, almost probably things that you can't even compare. So, uh, so those are going to be problems that need to be addressed. And I don't know what the answer is. I don't know who's going to win. I don't know if there is going to be a winner at all, but it's going to be very interesting to see where that goes. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no clear vision for how to proceed. It just seems like thinking back to visual, it's like, okay, you definitely want programmable pixels and you want them to have control over brightness and we'll get that done first and then we'll add more pixels and we'll make them color and then we'll make them smaller and you just look at it as sort of a really obvious progression in Mm -hmm. technology that everyone can just understand yeah i would i get why i would need more of them and i'd want them to have higher dynamic range and i'd want them to have more colors in haptics it's a lot more confusing because you could just go all the way down the road of saying vibration, vibration use cases. And then you could also say, well, we need forces and those are interpreted completely differently. And then don't forget about these higher order 
experiences mm-hmm. like texture and wetness and things like that. And it just, it almost feels like we're all moving different directions, but then one day we'll all arrive at the same place. It's just that we're taking these circuitous paths to the same place and exactly. um, it makes it harder to see where everybody's going. Yeah, no, totally. And it's, but at this time, that's also what kind of makes it exciting, right? Because you're seeing all these different avenues that are sort of like unfolding in front of you and you're like, oh yeah, this is, this is so cool. I don't know if you, I, 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 I've never tried it, but like just by reading papers, it sounds like pretty amazing. These interfaces whereby just producing these asymmetric vibrations, they can kind of give you the illusion of weight and like, mm-hmm. this is great. Right. Yeah, so, I've tried those. Yeah. They're Oh. Well, what do you think? They're great. There's um a kind of a background vibration. So mm-hmm. it's vibrating quite strongly in your hand, but then as it's vibrating, it's also pulling in yeah. one direction or another. Right. And that's using an asymmetric vibration. So the velocity is higher in one direction than another. So um the total force adds up to zero. So that's why it can work while it's not grounded, but uh it, yeah. it creates the illusion of being pulled. Yeah. That's the kind of thing where uh, similar to Ultra Leap, Ultra Leap, their their value is like you can feel something in midair that's not there. That's just like so cool and magical, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody immediately has their imagination sparked by by that. And this is a similar thing where it's like you could be holding a device and it pulls you totally independently of anything else, pulls you in a direction. That's just like, wow, so cool. Those are the types of things that make people inspired to go into the field, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, exactly. So did you see... Um, did you see the spot video from Boston Dynamics or the Atlas video in the last few days? Oh, they have a new one out? No. Yeah, yeah, of... yeah, they do. Yeah. I was just wondering if you, if you saw it with you thought because uh, it's already freaking people out. This Atlas humanoid robot is doing parkour and gymnastics and it's just like, it looks so unbelievably biologically real. Oh, yeah. 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 If you remember the first, the first, I remember the first video, you know, ages ago where this thing was like, you know, just barely able to walk in a straight line and that's, it's insane where, how far we've come. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, every time I, I should go check it out. Yeah. Every time I see a, there's one of their videos out, it's always kind of exciting to see how close we're getting to just close that gap to have these things, you know, maybe outperform humans, like. Um, if you say they're doing gymnastics and parkour, uh, that's definitely stuff I cannot do. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so wait, what are we getting close to? You said we're getting close to something. What do you think the thing is? In terms of robots and, and, and humans? I mean, I don't know. Just if you add up all technological progress into one cumulative, I don't know, activity, it just seems like people have ideas or opinions about what that's going to mean. And the thing Mm -hmm. is, it's in our lifetime. It's not some pie in the sky thing. It's like, no, we're going to have to deal with this. Oh yeah. It's all going to converge and we and our children are going to have to deal with this. But like, what is the, this, is it AGI? Uh, Is it the obsolescence of humans? What is it? I don't know. Um, There, there are, I guess, several avenues. I mean, one, we still have trouble even like making self-driving cars like mainstream because one I think one of the main problems is accountability, right? Mm-hmm. Whose responsibility is it when if something bad happens? And I mean, if we can even figure that out in terms of like cars that drive themselves in the city on a highway, like imagine when we're going to have robots that are now capable of doing complex tasks. So like. You send your robot, like, pick up your groceries and something bad happens on the way. Like, who's whose fault? Is it your fault? Is it the owner's fault? Is it the company's fault? Is it the developer's fault? I mean, this, this kind of questions, I mean, they've been posed many, many times and they're old questions, but still I don't see a clear answer in front of me, right? We're pushing the technology, we're pushing the app so much in terms of the stuff we are building, but then the lag between what we're capable of doing and then the frameworks that we're going to need to put in place to make these things actually, you know, widespread, it's not there yet. And that we're accumulating lag and lag in terms of like, just accepting that these things are coming and we need to figure out how we deal with them as a society or as legislative system or whatever you want to call it. I don't think it's there yet. And actually we're very far from it. Two systems that are working at very, very different speeds, but that at some point need to come back together. 
this is like one thing that I it always baffles me a little bit. But yeah, yeah, models of accountability. It's true. It's a huge gap, and it even extends beyond technology. As we learn about brain science, and we find out that certain people have brain structures that make them more likely to engage in some, let's say, illegal behavior. Right? Mm-hmm. Then, it's how to what extent do we hold the person accountable for like their biological presets? Yeah. Um, you know, it breaks our entire conception of accountability, and that might be related to robots and autonomy as well because we our mental model for accountability does not hold up to modern science in the way that that we had hoped or had assumed yeah exactly you know i know i hope i'm not going to be the one who's going to be in charge of making those decisions whoever needs to do that is going to have a like a very rough time but but at the same time it's so necessary just to you know start asking these questions and i mean as i said they've been asked and they've been around for a long time. I mean, it's nothing new. It's just like we keep pushing in terms of technology, but then still, I don't think there is a response that is proportionate on the other on the other end, and and that needs to be addressed at mm. some point very 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 soon. And it's an issue for haptics, I think, because you're giving people access to your body in a physical way. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's again one of these mental models that doesn't hold up. But we think that visual stimuli can't hurt you that badly so it's like not the most urgent concern that you know if somebody hacks your computer and shows you an image you didn't want to see it's like it could be traumatic actually and there's research that says it could be actually damaging long term but it just is different from physically injuring you having like tissue damage (laughs) coming from an interface and and that's where haptic starts to play right if you if you're wearing an advanced haptic interface that can well I guess there's a question of how much access to ranges of body motion is required to enable good haptic experiences versus just saying, you know what, you can't move people in ways that will wind up damaging them if, mm-hmm. if the system gets hacked or goes wrong. But I mean, there are, yeah. there are cases where that just doesn't make sense. Like for an exoskeleton that needs to lift a lot of weight to help somebody, let's say, walk who can't walk in a wheelchair. Uh, sorry, who can't walk without a wheelchair? They can they can walk with these exoskeleton legs because the motors in the exoskeleton are strong enough to carry them. Well, if they're strong enough to carry them, then they're also strong enough if they malfunction to do serious damage to the person, right? Oh yeah, yeah for sure. And I mean, you're you're like literally building interfaces that are in direct contact with people, right? So right. that's you know also something you always need to take into account. Like you know, we were talking about context again, coming back to this. Uh, for, for some reason, but again, is it appropriate even to engage the haptic channel in some context? And this could be one of the reasons, right? It might be even too dangerous in some context to even have haptics on, right? And then, of course, if you start thinking about, yeah, maybe the interface could have been hacked in the process and haptics in that particular situation can actually endanger the person, that becomes a big issue. And I think a lot of teleoperation is a big thing. That also comes, I guess, with these 5G networks that, well, maybe those exoskeletons are going to be something that we're going to see more and more. Because why would somebody go do maintenance in a, a nuclear plant when they can send a robot and just control it with the same fine degree of control that they can do if they were doing the thing themselves, right? Yeah. So this is interface. It's not such a bad situation because it just means that we have more to do, people like you and me, yeah. right? We need to figure out how to make oh, these yeah. systems like safe and functional. But I think in the next era of haptic development, it's going to be a key issue. Mm-hmm. Permissions yeah. and safety and all those types. Of, I mean, think about the, uh, you know, the min- you've seen Minority Report. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, when he's walking through the mall and he's being bombarded by AR ads and it's just totally overwhelming. And it's meant to convey, like, look at this nightmarish future scenario where you're surrounded by virtual ads and you're being totally attacked and accosted by them. But now imagine that those are haptic and that those advertisers can poke and prod you and maybe even change the direction you're walking to try to get you to walk into a store or get you to turn your head to look at something. It becomes an order of magnitude more invasive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, that comes back to that if you want a model of accountability or like just setting out a set of rules in terms of like what are the things that you can and what are the things you can do again because there is a natural lag between this technology being pushed out and like some sort of like regulation be put in place that it's going to be sort of wild out there people are going to try stuff before we realize that 
yeah, maybe we, we shouldn't let him do all of that. No, definitely, gonna, I'm gonna, it's going to be exciting to see how that, how that plays out. So we've talked about the downside, but what do you see as being the main exciting user benefit or human benefit to haptics in the next, let's say, first of all, in the next 5G era, so the next 20 years, and then beyond that? I think remote touch is definitely something that I'm kind of waiting to see. I, I really want to see it happen. And and I think it's going to be very exciting from both the social implications that that could have, closing gaps between people that are far apart, to like just being able to experience things to a level that we were not even able to think before. And, uh, and even like from a technological point of view, ways that we're going to need to figure out to send and stream this haptic content. That's very exciting for me because we talked a lot about actuators and all these different interfaces, right? There is a lot of work, kind of like amazing work out there in terms of designing these artificial skins. So these robots that we're going to control, they are going to be able to sense things with their effectors, right? And then send this back to us. And then the actuator part is what you know, concerns us in, in the sense of how we're going to receive this information. Touch, for instance, or these companies like that, they're doing some amazing work. And I just can't wait to see what's coming next in terms of making robots even more aware of what it is that they're touching, right? This is going to be something really cool to see. Yeah, you could think of teleoperation evolving into something that really makes good on the promise of telepresence. You know, oh, yeah. instead yeah. of just thinking about the task that you're operating, you now are using the robot as a sensory extension, um, mm-hmm. make, giving you like superhuman capabilities. Yeah. Human enhancement is really interesting to me. There's this idea that, well, we think of technology as having superhuman capabilities now because it mm-hmm. can do things that we can't do. It can go faster than we can. It can think faster than we can. You know, it can play chess better than any human. But maybe with haptics and integrating people more tightly into the feedback loop between sensor input, haptic output, you start to conceive of technology as being a, an extension of us instead of something separate and outside of us. Mm-hmm. That vision is out there, mixed reality stuff. A lot of research and a lot of interest in terms of the, the commercial viability of all these interfaces, exactly that. Especially with mixed realities, like you have this glasses or uh, or this device on your face all the time and then the technology just something that it's augmenting your reality but it's not something that you need to turn on and off it's just there it blends in and it's there and it becomes like a part of your life as if it was an extra layer that is completely part of, of, of your environment and I think that that vision is out there it's been out there for a while and I'm just uh, again very excited to see how that's going to play out and there are some interesting players in that space too. And, and I think some interesting things are happening and uh, it's all going to be about content eventually, you know? Yeah. Does this extra content that I can get justify me having this interface on my face all the time? And yeah, maybe I'm going to have to deal with ads and things that are pushed on me that maybe I didn't want to have. But, you know, is it going to be worth it? I think we're going to have to see. Mm. Yeah, but it's exciting times. And then the same applies to haptics for sure. Yeah. Any final thoughts on on where this is all going? So for me, it's just very exciting to have a small part into all of this. It's great when you can see that the work you're doing and the research that you're doing and, and the things that you've been thinking about for a long time start happening. And as a researcher, I think that's, that's just great. Especially for haptics, if it's something that gets people inspired and gets people wanting to apply their skills. And that's the great thing about haptics. I'm kind of like going back to haptics, I guess, because it's such a versatile field where people with a bunch of different backgrounds can come in and contribute. It's great and we see it all the time. I really wish we could see it happen more. You know, it's just very exciting to see and, and it's sort of great to be part of that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to having haptics as more mainstream as possible in the coming in the coming years and and to see that the awareness of like making good haptics and taking haptics into account when designing any sort of experience is happening slowly but we're getting there yeah i agree it seems like haptics has always 
had these moments where we all thought, this is the tipping point. This is the point where it's finally going to be considered as a first order part of the experience. And then it's not really a tipping point. It's like an increment. And it like it does bring us closer, but it's almost like Zeno's paradox. It seems like we never really get there, but it does feel like we're yet again approaching one of these moments. I don't know if it's an increment or it's a tipping point, but there's more and more people working on it. There are Kickstarters and really interesting companies and ideas that are getting out of the labs and becoming integrated into products. And so, yeah, I agree with you. This is a really exciting time. Part of the reason I wanted to start these conversations is because I just, I can feel it in the air. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's time that we all start having public conversations about this technology. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's great that you decided to make this happen. And even, you know, just thinking about something like this happening a few years ago would have been crazy. Like you're going to do a podcast with people that work in haptics. It's like people don't even, didn't even know what haptics meant, right? But now, no, now we, I think we're to a point that actually there's going to be a crowd out there that could be interested in listening to this. I can ask for anything better than that. It's, uh, it's great. That's great. Are you active on social media or do you have any upcoming events that you're going to be at? Yeah, my LinkedIn page, sometimes I post stuff up there. I'm not a big social media person. I'm more, yeah, I keep a low profile, you know, old old school, old generation, I guess. Cool. But yeah, so the next event is uh, probably going to be Uist. I don't know when this is going to air, but in Louisiana. So I'm going to be there. Chad, I'm sponsoring the event, so we're going to be there. There is a lot of us skimming through the talks and the keynotes. It's going to be quite a lot of interesting haptic stuff there, too. And then after that, I guess we're both going to be there at uh, Smart Haptics in Seattle. That's going to be a very exciting time to see what people in the industry are doing. Yes, I'm excited to be there for these two events. And you're giving a talk, right? And what is the topic of your talk? It's a little bit what I glanced over in the last maybe 10 minutes. My talk is going to be about going through a what it means to be a haptic designer these days. What does this space look like in terms of all the things that a haptic designer needs to know when designing haptic experience for any sort of platform to content to audience and you know, and kind of like how much we're struggling because the tools are not necessarily there and like try to figure out what the next generation of haptic tools is going to look like and how can that make the life of haptic designers easier in some way. So trying to give a give an overview of where we are and where at least that, you know, I hope things will be going next for haptic designers. It's fantastic. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Thanks a lot. Bye. See you soon. Thanks. Thank you for listening. You can find me online at DaveBirnbaum.com. You can support this podcast by subscribing to it, telling your friends and colleagues about it, and by supporting it through Patreon. More information at DaveBirnbaum.com. Beats by Illy MC. The views and opinions expressed in this recording do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of people, institutions, or organizations that the owner or guests may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone, or anything. Copyright 2019, Dave Birnbaum.